Hi, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I am pleased to bring to you the sixth Aliyah of the Sidra of Shofetim in the book of Devarim. Aliyah 6 continues with the laws needed to ensure a stable and just nation. Chapter 19, verse 14. Lo tasig gevul reacha asher gavulu rishonim benachalatcha asher tinchal ba'aretz asher adonai lohecha nutein l'chala rishda. That's it, a short, sweet law, but very important. Do not move backwards your compatriot's border, which was determined at the beginning, that is, at the first allotment uh, of, the national, of, the, of the national land, in your lot that you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to conquer. Now, back then, it's important to understand that borders were marked off with stele, that is, stone markers that had the names of the property on them, and the border would be drawn from stele to stele. So there were no surveyor maps, there were no charts or ways to guarantee what part of the land was owned or not. So essentially, if you were a sneaky guy and you moved backwards somebody's stone, nobody could, could prove, I guess if you messed around with the dirt, nobody could prove that it wasn't there all along. And that's the law. We're warned not to do such things, and the consequences are obvious. The next section returns to the issue of the rules of witnesses. Now, some of this was already covered in an early aliyah, specifically the requirement of two or more witnesses and the requirement for close investigation. So the rabbis understand this section is dealing with a very special kind of witness, uh, an aid zomim or adim zomim, literally witnesses who plan or plot. These are not witnesses that were at the scene of the crime and either intentionally or unintentionally warped the facts of the case. These are people who weren't there at all. They are witnesses who were essentially bought uh, or for whatever reason of their own, decide to testify about something that they know nothing about. They are presenting themselves as witnesses to events which they did not witness at all. Lo yakum eid echad b'ish l'chol avon, l'chol chatat, b'chol chet, asher yecheta, al pi shenei eidim, al pi shloshai eidim yakum davar. A single witness cannot arise against or really testify against a person for any kind of sin or transgression, uh, of any kind of transgression that can be done, and the fact... Uh, what's interesting here is it's being generic about any kind of transgression, but I think it's very important to the, the fact that this section comes directly after the issue of moving one's border stele, border markers, is very, very fitting because here we're talking about reliability of witnesses specifically. And the classic case to, that the, the classic case which shows the, the need to rely on witnesses and to have a good witness system is the border stone issue. Because again, once it's moved, only truth and reliability of witnesses of ADM can really establish who is right and who's wrong. And if you can't trust that, you wind up with complete breakdown of a system where everybody starts ripping off everybody else's land and finding about it. Anyway, returning to the verse, rather based on two witnesses or three witnesses, can the matter be established or perhaps can the testimony stand? So again, the focus here not, is not so much on the court case, but on these specific type of witnesses. Should a malicious witness arise against a person to testify without basis? And two men, or really two parties, will have a dispute, meaning in court, before the Lord and before the priests and before the judges or rulers of those days. So again, it's not the court case which is the key issue. The key issue is the type of witnesses that are at this court case. That is, here they're not investigating the case, they're, well, they're investigating the case, but, but they're really, uh, examining whether the witnesses were there in the first place to the point that they could be viable witnesses. Sheker Ana Be 
And those judges will investigate carefully and discover that the witness, really the witness group, referred to as a singular, is false. It testified falsely against its brother. Again, the rabbis understand that that it's not that the witness's testimony was false, it's that the witness himself was false. That is, the witness had no right to testify in the first place because he wasn't there to see the action. And this is the interesting thing. They are still considered plotters and guilty and evil, even if their statement is accurate. For instance, let's take the, I'll give you the following example. Let's say someone did me something wrong. Somebody wronged me. But let's, I have no witnesses. So I'm stuck. So what do I do? I go to two students, two friends, and I pay them off where I just say, listen, guys, this really happened to me. This guy really stole $20 from me, but I can't prove it in a court case. So do me a favor. I'm an honest guy. Believe me and testify for me. And they may believe me. They really may think what they're doing is honest. Why not? I'm a nice guy. I may be telling the truth. In fact, even if I am telling the truth, and even if the, the witness that these guys bear in the end turns out to be accurate, they are still considered plotness, plotting witnesses. And if it turns out that they were not there in the case, regardless of whether I had my $20 stolen or not, they have to pay the price. And the, the reason why the law is so strict by these Adim Zoman, these plotting witnesses, by these witnesses that weren't even there, the reason why this is so evil is that if you think about it, Jewish law relies ultimately on the testimony of witnesses, much more so than it relies on evidence. Sure, it examines the evidence to make sure the witnesses had the story straight, but ultimately the word of a witness can put you away or not put you away. So if the witness system itself is undermined and people start testifying, not getting things wrong, which is bad, but not terrible, but testifying about things that they never had the right to testify, even if they believe them to be correct, then the whole legal system is undermined and the result is anarchy and the result is a dissolution of the state, of the government, of the ability of, a, of, of any kind of civil society. And therefore, the punishment is so harsh. Should the witness testify about something they did not see at all, you will do to it, that is due to the witness group, as it plotted to do to its brother, and you will burn away the evil from your midst. That is, if it was a capital case, the Adam's own men get the death penalty. If it was a civil case, they have to pay whatever dam damages their testimony would have caused. And the others, meaning other potential witnesses, meaning everyone really, will hear and fear and cease to repeat this terrible thing that was done in your midst. Have, do not have pity. That is, don't have more pity than they deserve. Which means, in a sense, they really, did, again, in the situation where I convinced two people that I was telling the truth and I asked them to be witnesses for me, there's a potential for feeling pity. Oh, they got tricked, they got, they got sucked in, they were, they were trying to do the right thing. No, you can't have pity. Rather, soul for soul, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for a foot, they must be punished. Now, this famous line, which is the third time it, it, it appears in the Torah, the famous eye for an eye, 
uh, is famously learned out by oral law to be referring to specific type of damages, not that God forbid you poke out somebody's eye. And in this location, it's the most obvious because we're not talking about punishments. We're talking about paying back the witness what they were trying to get to happen to the other person. So essentially, each one of these body parts represents a different type of financial damage, such as uh, pain and suffering, medical costs, and the like. Nefesh benefesh, of course, does mean that if the plotter testimony would have caused someone to receive the death penalty, then that plotting witness group is put to death instead. The next section deals with calling up soldiers for war. Now, in Solomon's time and in the reign of some other kings, such as Uziah, there was a standing army, what in modern Israel is called Keva. But most of the time, and certainly during the pre-monarchy period, soldiers were called up as needed. That is, essentially, farmers were turned into soldiers when they were needed. And what we see here is that a Kohen is being assigned to bring God, so to speak, into the battle. That is... Their job is to establish that every war undertaken, even a voluntary war, which I'll talk about uh, shortly, um, is something that God is directly involved in. To, to, to say to the people, you are expected to behave in a holy way because God is with you. And as a result, they could expect, if their behavior was good, that God would aid in their undertaking. This is, by the way, the beginning of chapter 20. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and a larger nation than yourself, do not fear them because the Lord your God is with you, the one who took you out of the land of Egypt. Meaning, hint, hint, if Egypt went down, so will these guys. As And as you approach the war, which either means right before the, the enemy is engaged, or perhaps when you leave your own borders and enter enemy territory, the Kohen, meaning the one assigned to head the military undertaking, or the religious part of the military undertaking, he's referred to as the Meshuach Melchama, he will approach and speak to the nation and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are engaging in a war against your enemies. Do not let your hearts, really your purposefulness, weaken. Do not fear. Do not panic. And fall apart before them because the Lord, your God, goes out with you to fight for you against your enemies and to save you. And that's the good news. But now we get to the part that there are certain people that should not fight. And that's not the job of the Kohen, but job of officers or police, or specifically military police. Now, the traditional understanding of this next section is that it applies only to wars called Milchemet Rashut, or optional or voluntary wars. And this type of war is, happens when a king or a leader wants to expand his territory or his treasury and makes war against another nation, which he's allowed to do. Uh, under certain circumstances. The other type of war is a Muhammad mitzvah, and that the king could always do. He doesn't need approval from a Beitin or a Sanhedrin or anything like that. Uh, and that situation, Muhammad mitzvah, is, uh, included the original conquest of Israel, or destroying Amalek and the seven uh, nations when they existed, and fighting for Israel whenever it is under attack. In that kind of war, uh, according to our oral tradition, the following dispensation, dispensations are not available and everyone must fight.
ומי האיש אשר נטע כרם ולא חיללו, ילך וישוב לביתו פן ימות במלחמה ואיש אחר יכלה לנו. ומי האיש אשר ארס אישה ולא לקחה, ילך וישוב לביתו פן ימות במלחמה ואיש אחר ייקחנה. And the police, meaning the military police, will speak to the nation saying, is there anyone who has built a new house but has not inaugurated it, meaning apparently not moved into it yet? Let him go and return to his house lest he die in war and another man will inaugurate it. Now, as we'll see, we're not worried about the house. We're worried about the state of mind of this soldier and whether he is distracted about an important thing. Continuing, and is there anyone who has planted a vineyard but has not chililo, literally hollowed it out, meaning apparently harvested it? Uh, according to Rashi, chililo comes from the word chol or mundane, the opposite of holy, which refers to the fourth year of the growth of a vineyard when the fruit are brought to the temple and afterwards the person can eat from his own, uh, the fruit of his land. Anyway, That person should, should return home, lest he die in war, and someone else, chilo, whatever that is, to harvest it. And is there a man who is engaged to a woman, uh, but who has not married her yet? Now, in ancient times, there was a separation time between the time when a man asked a woman to become holy to him. That was called the irusin, or kiddushin. And when they actually consummated their relationship and became fully husband and wife, that's called the nisuin, or here, the likicha. That person who's in that in-between stage and is worried about that day that he's going to Uh, consummate his relationship and start his uh, life as husband and wife, he should return to his house lest to, or return to her lest he die in war and someone else will take her in marriage. Now, these are just three possibilities, but afterwards the net of exemptions is spread wider. Now, these people are different. Why? Because they're told to go home. Uh, at least I think the reason why these three cases are singled out is that these soldiers are in a fighting mood. They got engaged to a woman and now they're happy to go out and fight in a war. Or they have a precious harvest, or they have a brand new house, but they're happy to go out into battle. The problem is that because these three things are so important, the person's mind, even though they have the right intentions, their minds will stray away from the battle. They're going to worry about these essential things, their home, their wealth, their wife. And therefore, they put themselves at risk and put the rest of the army at risk as well. So after we've gotten rid of these people that think they could fight, even though they really should not be fighting, even more so after weeding these people out, we get to the people that really are not ready to fight at all. The military police should resume speaking to the nation and say, is there anyone who is afraid or irresolute? He should go and return to his home and not melt the resolves of his brothers as he is irresolute. As I said, all of this applies to an optional war. For a mandatory war... Listen, the sake of Israel was at stake, so everybody had to go and fight. And after the MPs finished speaking to the nation, obviously after everyone who was in a, uh, unfit to fight, after they depart, the officers of the army will count the heads of the, the, the nation, that is, the soldiers who remain. In the next and final aliyah, the Torah will move on, after it's talked about how to do the draft, it will move on to appropriate uh, behavior in these wars, both mandatory wars and optional, both Milchemet Mitzvah and Milchemot Rishut.